0: So as we now continue our study through the Apostles' Creed, an ancient summary of the faith, not inspired but helpful, we seek to to go through these various central doctrines of our faith and practice as believers in Christ, the central tenets of orthodox, true believing Christianity. We come today to that line of His ascension and return, seeking to consider from the words of Scripture what it teaches concerning these things, to be faithful to Scripture's testimony, to explain it and to apply it to our lives and our hope and practice. And so we've uh, we've gone through to this point in the Apostles' Creed. We've studied what it says that we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, Was crucified, dead, and was buried, descended to hell, and rose again from the dead in the third day. And now we study and confess that he has ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty, from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Let me consider that as we see Christ ascended and seated in glory and soon returning, that we should draw near to glorify him and to trust him for our present, co- our present comfort and our future hope. As we begin our exposition, would you pray with me once more? Lord, we pray that you would bless the hearing and the preaching of your word. That Christ in his flesh said, your word is truth, Lord. And we pray as he did that you would sanctify us by your word. God bless this time. May the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Amen. So here now in the book of Acts, as we looked a number of times in the book of Matthew in the next last couple of weeks at Christ's crucifixion, his death and burial, and his resurrection from the dead, and then now considering his last words to his apostles, his disciples, and his ascension into heaven. So we consider now how Christ ascended to heaven, what benefit that has to us, what it means for us, what Christ does now at the present, and what he has promised to do in the future. So we have here in Acts Luke, the the gospel writer's account of Jesus' last words. Uh, Luke, who also wrote the, the gospel of Luke, chronicling the ministry, the life and times of Christ on this earth, and now continuing with more eyewitness accounts. Of what christ continues to do through his spirit by his church and so we see in the first couple of verses that him setting the stage would we'll just read verses one through five as the prologue luke says in the first book O theophilus i have dealt with all that jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up after he had given commands through the holy spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, by which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We come into this very unique point in the history of redemption, where Christ now resurrected and his kingdom and rule and reign now begun. But yet before the Holy Spirit has come to fully apply his, the power of his witness to his believers, it's, it's a unique time and place. But it's also a great encouragement to us that we can learn even from the mistakes of the disciples that we see here. Let's look again to verses 6 through 8. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, it's not for you to know the times and seasons the Father has fixed by his authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you that you would be my witnesses near and far to the end of the earth. Jesus' last message to the disciples and in response to their question, Lord, is now the hour of the consummation of all things, of the consolation of Israel? Is now the hour of where you restore the kingdom to israel it's a question that they've asked jesus at numerous times throughout his life and ministry it's a question uh, of a fulfillment of their hope that they've been looking to likely all of their lives as these disciples and and the people gathered there with them have spent their lives under roman occupation under the boot of caesar and his soldiers waiting for the day that the messiah would come and drive out these Gentile pagans and restore to them the glories of their messianic kingdom, the Davidic kingdom. This is what they had been hoping for. It's it's what the Pharisees were hoping for. It's what the crowds were hoping for. And when they seemed like Jesus wasn't this man, that's when they turned on him and betrayed him. And so now the disciples ask this question, and it seems like they still don't entirely understand what Jesus had been teaching them. Luke says that for 40 days, he had been teaching them still about the nature of the kingdom, but their questions still remain about the nature of the kingdom he's establishing and, and when and how he will establish this kingdom. But Jesus says it is not for them to know the times and seasons fixed by the Father's authority. And this is a temptation that we all face, a temptation to, to peek behind the curtain, to to jump ahead in the story, to skip a few chapters just to relieve ourselves of the anxiety, or maybe to, uh, to read the summary of the episodes in the show that we're watching, just to make sure we know how it ends, and it ends well. <laughs> hypothetically, of course. But it's a temptation that we all have, a desire to know what the future holds for us, that we all, like the apostles, have the desire to see Christ's kingdom restored. We want to see him come on clouds of glory. We want to know that it's soon to deliver us and and to keep us from the, the temptations and the suffering and the weakness that we're all destined to face until he returns. But it is not for us to know, brothers and sisters. It's not for us to know the secret and hidden will of God. Not for the day of his return, nor for certain the things that are yet to come though I, I really wish it would be much easier for me that he would tell us when we're going to establish as a church, when we'll get a new building, when you know I'll be able to enter ministry full-time, when we'll get a good apartment and a forever home in the area, though I wish that he would just tell me all of these things. It's not for us to know what the future holds. It's for us to wait patiently and to trust him. Even it makes me think of the way that he taught us, his disciples, to pray, give us, Lord, this day, our daily bread. To focus today on the needs of today and to trust him with whatever the future holds. John Calvin on this passage quoted that, furthermore, there's a fault in their whole question, namely that they desire to know the things that are not right for them to know. As Deuteronomy 29.29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord. But what he has revealed is for us and our children to know and to do. That he has revealed enough for us to keep us busy until he returns or calls us home. And as Calvin also said, when the Lord closes his holy mouth, I will stop inquiring. As difficult as it is, we must be content to pray and to trust him with what he has revealed to us and to be patient with what he has not. But he does tell them, to be prepared for the next step in his plan for the redemption of all things. That Jesus promises them that he's not going to leave them without help. He's not going to abandon them now that he ascends and leaves this earth. That he says, you will receive power, not earthly political power as as the Jews were seeking, but the power that comes with the manifestation of his spirit the power that would come at the day of Pentecost, the power, in their cases, the apostles of signs and wonders to bear great witness, to confirm the gospel message that they were preaching in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That they had the power, the apostles, the, the power of signs and wonders. Miracles, actually, is, is a word that we use to refer to several different biblical worlds, words The primary one that the Bible actually uses is actually not miracle, but sign. That these signs and wonders are something that point to the confirmation of the messenger. That just as the prophets of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, confirmed their witness by the miracles that they performed, as as Peter will later say that God confirmed the ministry of Christ through attesting to his signs and miracles, so also he would give them a special anointing of power to confirm their authority as the apostles of Christ and the eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so they are not left without duties, and they are not left without what they need to accomplish them. They are not going to be generals in his new kingdom and army, but rather to be witnesses of what he has done and accomplished. John Gill, the Baptist pastor, says that they are to be witnesses of the person of Christ, of his deity and sonship, of his incarnation, his ministry and his miracles, of his suffering and death, of his resurrection from the dead, of his ascension into heaven. This was to be their work and what belonged to them, not to inquire about temporal kingdoms and setting them up in the times and seasons of them. Their business was to testify of the sufferings of Christ and of the glory that followed, and to preach a crucified Jesus as the only savior of lost sinners. This was their commission, as it is in likewise for us today, not to seek the reestablishment of a heavenly kingdom here on earth, but to be faithful as sojourners and exiles, the scripture calls us, to go and preach Christ crucified and as the gospel go forth, so to see the kingdom grow and expand. Which we see through the rest of the book of Acts, the way that the Spirit works in great power through the the signs and wonders of the apostles, and later on through just the simple preaching of Christ crucified. As the New Testament is written and established more and more, as the apostles begin to die and their ministry begins to fade out, we see less of a focus in the New Testament on signs and wonders and miracles. At the beginning in Acts, they're all over the place. In some of the early books, like in 1 Corinthians, he has to deal with them a lot because they're using and abusing their spiritual gifts. But as the decades progress, the focus shifts not to the signs and wonders but to the preaching of Christ crucified, of life in the local church, of our duties to one another in Christ's congregation and as witnesses in his world. So this is their charge. And as they hear these words from Christ, and uh, in addition to his, his commission to go and make disciples, of all the, the things that he spoke to them on that last day on the, on the Mount, they begin to see him ascend. And I I don't have the words to describe what that looked like. I can't tell you exactly how it happened or or what it looked like, but what a glorious sight it must have been to see Jesus to be lifted up, not in a cross, but in a cloud of God's great glory, to ascend back into heaven, to the realm of his pre incarnate glory, to see Christ ascend and riding on the clouds. It's interesting the way that we see clouds appear elsewhere in Jesus' ministry, like in the Transfiguration. When Jesus is up all night praying on the mountain and his disciples come to see what's going on and they find him shining with heavenly glory, that the, the beauty and glory of his divinity is peeking through. He's there speaking with Moses and Elijah of the things to come, and they don't know what to think, and then a cloud descends on him. Matthew seventeen five. He was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The cloud overshadowing Christ at the transfiguration and at his ascension further confirm the glory of his divinity, that it hides the full radiance of his glory from earthly eyes, and that it confirms that he is the Son of God made flesh. As we see throughout the Old Testament that the Lord, rides on the clouds as his chariot, Psalm 104.3. And in Isaiah 19.1, that he comes under the chariots of the clouds in judgment against the nations. We see Jesus speaking often in the Gospels of when the Son of Man comes in his glory, riding on the clouds, when his judgment day comes. And so the disciples stand there, amazed as we all would have been, looking into the heavens, uh, stunned almost. I don't know if they expected to keep watching until Jesus descended or what else they hoped to see. But they look there, staring into the clouds with their head, where their Savior and King had gone until two angels appear beside them in, in the form of men and say, Men of Galilee, why do you stay staring into the heavens? Almost to, to confirm to them, Christ isn't coming back right now. But they do give this assurance to them that he shall return. That one day the Son of Man, as surely as they saw him, visibly and bodily ascend into the heavens and ride the clouds of God's glory, so also shall they see the Son of Man come visibly and bodily, coming on the clouds with judgment on his enemies. In the same way that he departed, the same way shall he return. And so this is the beautiful truth of Christ's ascension, and his future return. We can consider these things in the lens of past and present and future, that in the past, some 2,000 years ago, Christ truly and historically was raised up and transported into realms of heavenly glory, however that may have happened, and that presently he still sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father on high, interceding for his saints and ruling and reigning over his new creation how it has already begun, though not yet fully consummated. And in the future, he has promised by his numerous predictions and in the message of these angels that one day he shall return in the same way that he departed. So we confess his ascension as an important and as an essential element of our Christianity. We believe that Christ's work, that all that he did, didn't stop at his resurrection. It, it wouldn't have been the same if Jesus had come back from the dead and then just kind of kept going about normal life for the next couple of years. What we see in Christ being taken up is we see the culmination of his exaltation. We see the further glory of Christ being displayed in him being taken from this earth, not seated on an earthly throne in an earthly palace, but taken up to the seat of heavenly glory to say, take the seat of glory at the right hand of his Father. As we considered from Philippians 2 some months ago, the way that Christ came all the way from highest heights and humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, came all the way down. He humbled himself all the way to the, to the disrespectful and, and degrading death of a cross. He went all the way down in his humiliation and in his exaltation. He has gone all the way back up again so that He now is seated in glory. And that even as He existed from all eternity as Father, Son, and Spirit, this triune God, with all glory inherent to Himself, that as divine His glory can't truly be diminished, but yet now that Christ has come in the flesh as the fulfillment of God's plan decreed from all ages past, to bring about the salvation of His people that as he now sits enthroned above the heavens, the incarnate Christ now has an even greater glory by some fantastic miracle. As Paul says to Timothy, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, that he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. 1 Timothy 3.16 and so this raises a number of questions as well, that heaven is a place where God in spirit dwells with his angels, but it's also a place where a physical human body can go. That, that raises some interesting questions about the nature of heaven as a, a place where it is. Because often I think we're, we're quick to think of it as just kind of a, a spiritual realm that's that's kind of a a spiritual counterpart to earth as the physical reality, but but yet at the same time, it's a place where a physical body can dwell locally, where Jesus' body didn't just dissolve into nothing. It actually went somewhere. And this isn't the first time this has happened. When we look to the Old Testament, we see Enoch in Genesis, who it says the Lord took and he was not. However, that happens we see later how elijah who we've already spoken of was carried up into heaven as one of god's foremost prophets in angelic chariots of fire they take him up and where does he go he goes into heaven into the direct presence of god and yet he does so bodily we see christ as well go there bodily that heaven is not it's not only a spiritual existence where we go when we die and float around as disembodied things, uh, strumming hearts like angels in the cartoons. And neither is it a, a place that you can stick a location on. Uh, heaven and hell are not just other places that you can locate in the created world. I don't think you can't you can't geolocate heaven. There's no coordinates in the GPS that you can plug in to get you to where heaven is. It's it's not like a Jess and I have been watching the Percy Jackson series, which is it's kids' books based on Greek mythology. It's a fantasy series. But in this show, they can go to their heaven, Olympus, by going up the Empire State Building. It's a, a physical place that they can locate. They can enter the underworld by going to Los Angeles, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> but this is not how heaven truly is. It is, yes, a a spiritual realm, but it was meant to dwell in harmony with the physical world. That that was part of God's original creation, that Edom almost, the garden, was was the overlap of heaven and earth. And that sin has destroyed that overlap to the point where only Christ and his coming again to make all things new can reunite the two in a a new heaven and new earth forever. And it's interesting the more that I would study grammar and Greek and Hebrew and stuff, the more that I noticed how the small details can have big meanings, how it says that it says a new heaven and earth, that heaven and earth are now united into a single new reality. What a glory. And so he says that, that he has gone away now, that physically Christ is no longer present with us, as he told his disciples he would in the upper room. He said, the hour is coming when I will depart from you, and where I'm going, you can't follow me. And so they say, where are you going, Lord? It's a place where he has now gone, or his his body is now not physically present with us. But it asks the question as well, didn't he promise to be with us to the end of the age? In his Great Commission, Matthew 28, he said, Surely I will be with you always to the end of the age. So what does it mean for him to be with us now that we can't see him and touch him? Well, we know from the scriptures that Christ, being both truly God and truly man, functions according to his two natures. That Christ, being divine, has always been present everywhere, and in that sense has never left us nor can leave us. As the psalmist says, if I ascend to the heights, you are there, Lord. If I descend to the depths, you are there, Lord. There is nowhere I can go apart from your presence. And yet, in another, even more miraculous sense, that that Christ is especially present by his Spirit with his church. He says in Matthew 18 that when the church gathers to pronounce discipline upon somebody, when the two or three are gathered as witnesses and judgment, he is there in their midst. And I think that that it's true that whenever we meet as the saints gathered every Lord's Day to, to gather for His worship and Lord willing in a few months to observe His sacraments, the Lord's Supper and Baptism, that He is specially, spiritually present with us. We don't call His body down, but spiritually our covenant Lord comes and eats this covenant meal with us. And of course, by His Holy Spirit, who he promises in this passage, and whom he promised to the disciples in the upper room. He actually told them that it was good for them, better for them, that he would be physically absent, and that by his spirit would be spiritually present. That in the grand scheme of the history of redemption, having God beside you is not as good as having God within you. Something that we must apprehend by faith that even if we don't see the indwelling of the Spirit, even if we don't necessarily feel the indwelling of the Spirit, for us who believe and have been filled with the very presence of God, it is a greater reality than even being next to Christ in his incarnate body. And we confess as well that he has gone to prepare a place for us. He said to his disciples in that upper room, John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Christ is not inactive in heaven above. He hasn't gone to kick his feet back on the heavenly throne and kind of wait things out until the time is right. That even now, as he has seated himself in his rule and reign, he must reign, the scripture says, until he has placed all of his enemies under his feet and as he ever lives to make intercession for us. That even now, he is still exercising his rule and reign as the son of David, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That Christ's complete exaltation as the victorious Messiah means that Jesus is still on the throne. Philippians 2, 5-11, again, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That the glory that Jesus Christ now has is the glory of God himself That the incarnate Christ now receives all glory and praise that we could ever give him. That God in the flesh, now as our mediator, as our Messiah, as our triumphant king, we can now come to him. And as he continues to rule and reign, we see in glory that he has taken our humanity up with him. That Jesus did not leave his body behind as he ascended into heaven. He didn't shrug it off so that he could detach himself from this this gross matter that we're stuck to, as the the Gnostics and the pagans would have us believe. Rather, we confess that Christ now, still as God and man, sits enthroned in heaven, that as he has taken humanity to himself, as he has assumed a true human nature, he carries with him always our nature that this is a key theme that the early church fathers wrote upon, that he came in the flesh, that God may be reunited with man in himself, and that he is never leaving us nor forsaking us, just as much as he has taken our nature itself up to heaven to be with him, and forged the path for us that we could never make for ourselves. And that he, as our perfect Messiah, as our incarnate king, is both God and man, so that he may ever be a perfect high priest in the house of God. This is something that Hebrews focuses on. Pretty much all of chapters 7 through 10 speak of Christ as the perfect high priest, who, being God and man, can now perfectly sympathize with us and our weakness, can perfectly atone in the place of sinful fallen humanity, and also fully take and accomplish the mission of God for the redemption of our sins. That he ever lives to intercede for us. Hebrews 7, 23 through 26, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in their office. They needed all these priests because they just kept dying. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, then today Christ prays for you. Christ continues as a good high priest to present you before his Father that you may be atoned for and cleansed and forgiven and free. That right now Jesus is praying for you. I forgot who gave the illustration, but I heard a preacher say that if you knew that Jesus was in the room above us praying for you by name, that would bring you an awful lot of comfort, wouldn't it? But remember that the distance doesn't matter whether he's in the next room over or still in heaven. He continues to pray for you by name. And that is the source of unimaginable comfort and grace, knowing that he will never leave us nor forsake us, nor will he ever cease to pray for us, his children. And this is a part as well of, of the nature of his atonement and intercession, that as the Father has chosen a people to give to his Son, As the Son has atoned for the sins of those people, he now intercedes for those chosen people. Jesus told his disciples in John 17, he prayed to the Father that God would keep these disciples that he had given to him and all who would believe through their testimony. Jesus says, I don't pray for the world. I pray for them that you have given to me. That his intoning work as the high priest is effective and does all that it was tasked to accomplish. It is an effectual and powerful atonement that does exactly what he intended it to do. And we see now, even more gloriously, that for us who have been raised with Christ to new life by his work, that as we die, we go with him, in a real sense, to reign with him above, As he told his disciples in Luke 22, you have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus spoke throughout his gospel ministry of a future ruling and reigning that the saints would have in the new heavens and the new earth, and also that in in a foretaste that this rule and reign has already begun for the saints who have departed. That as Ephesians 2 tells us, that he has already through his atoning work raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he may show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. Brothers and sisters, those who have departed have already been seated with Christ in the heavenly places and already begun, in a sense, to reign with him. Now, Revelation 20 is a debatable passage. There are many different views that we could get into today, but just consider these verses. Revelation 24 and 5, John sees, I saw thrones, and seated on those thrones were those to whom authority to judge was committed. I saw the souls of those who had been headed for the testimony of Christ and the word of God who would not worship the beast or his image and had received its mark on their foreheads and hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. And if I can be so bold, brothers and sisters, I would contend that the whole of Scripture considered this reigning with Christ has already begun for those departed in Christ. But that is a longer discussion for another day. But speaking of another day that we look forward to, let us consider our blessed hope, the scripture calls it, that where one day he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We've considered in the past his ascension, in the present his intercession, and in the future his return. And this is one of those essential marks of our belief and faith as Christians, that we look forward to the coming of Christ. And I say with emphasis, look forward to, because there have always been those who doubted the future coming of Christ. That Paul speaks in the New Testament of Hymenaeus and Alexander, who teach that the resurrection has already taken place, that Christ had already returned in their lifetimes. And the details of whatever heresy that they were preaching through this is is difficult to ascertain but we see similar beliefs that continue to pop up through church history even now today i know of several individuals with large public ministries who have come to the place where they say that you know 80 70 and the destruction of jerusalem that was the return of christ and that there's nothing in the future that we still look forward to this hyper-preterism, as it's called, a belief that everything it prophesied in the New Testament's already done, we're already in the new heavens and the earth, it, it was a spiritual return and a spiritual resurrection and a spiritual new heaven and new earth. And where that leaves the, the abundance of biblical teaching, I, I can't even fathom. And you see several cults today, like the Seventh-day Adventists, that teach that Jesus did come back secretly and invisibly and spiritually in the 1800s why and how i can't really make sense but we proclaim with the scriptures that we believe that the return of christ is still our blessed hope that the fact that he has not yet come to judge the living and the dead to make an end to sin and to evil to right every wrong to wipe every tear from our eyes to establish a new heaven and a new earth where all of God's people are with him in perfect peace forever, considering the world that we live in currently, I can only say that that has not yet happened. So when shall Christ return? Again, a a tricky question. He foretells in the Gospels, and the New Testament, that there will be signs pointing forward to his coming, signs of the times. Like in the parables of Matthew 13, he speaks much about the coming of the kingdom, how it It comes like weeds and wheat in a field, the parable of the dragnet and the mustard seed and the the soils, all of which they point to the nature of the kingdom as it grows, slowly but surely, in unexpected ways, with both good and evil coexisting until the day of final judgment. He also predicted and warned us of wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, persecutions, and false teachers, which would come before the end, which summarizes pretty much all of history since then. Because even though there are signs that we experience that point forward to the return of Christ, we also must confess that no one knows the day or the hour. Luke 17, the Pharisees asked him when the kingdom of God would come. It's like the apostles did at the beginning. He answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. He says that in this age, the coming of the kingdom comes in ways that can't be perceived with the eyes. But in this age, the kingdom continues to come. It's already in their midst. Because where the king is, there is his rule and reign. With the king comes the kingdom. His kingdom was already established in an important sense in his first coming, but not yet consummated. It hasn't been brought to its great climactic fulfillment. For as he continues to say, verse 24, as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to another, so will be the Son of Man in his day. Remember what the angel said, that as surely as they saw him visibly and bodily ascend on the clouds to heaven, so surely would they see him in the same way, visibly and bodily return on the clouds at his second coming. Jesus said at the end of the Olivet Discourse, which has a lot to do with the coming judgment, concerning that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And so this is another passage somewhat difficult to parse out. Uh, We consider this in the lesson on the Baptist Confession, chapter 8, which we recorded this week, how Christ in his two natures, as God still retains his infinite knowledge and wisdom, the Son in his divinity knows truly all things, but the Son in his human nature still has finitude. The Son in his humanity still only knows a limited number of things. That again, is a longer conversation but we must acknowledge and believe and live in light of Jesus teaching that none of us can know the day or the hour it is not for us to know the days and the times and the seasons and why is that well biblically because we should always be ready and expectant for the return of our lord jesus gives many parables of of the lord who goes away to a far land and tells his servants to perform their duties as he goes and says, I will return and hold you accountable for how you have acted. There will be those who are diligently serving this, their Lord when he returns, and there are those who grew carnal and, and disobedient in their security, saying he'll never return, and he will judge those servants. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-6 through 6 says this, Concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need, to have anything written to you you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying there's peace and security then sudden disruption comes on them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape but you are not in darkness brothers for the day to surprise you like a thief for you are all children of the light children of the day we do not of the night we are not of the night or the darkness so then Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. He speaks of the unbelievers in this world, who as they put off any prospect of future judgment, live in carnal security and disobedience, and upon them the return of Christ comes like a thief in the night, meaning it comes unexpectedly, with no notice, like sudden destruction it comes upon them. But for those who believe, he says not that it would come to surprise you like a thief in the night, because we're children of light, children of the day. For believers, the coming of Christ is not like a thief in the night. It is like a triumphant return of the king. Jesus returns visibly and bodily and triumphantly, riding on the clouds of heaven in judgment as he told us that he would. Revelation one seven, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Christ shall come, and every eye shall see him, and all the tribes of the earth that do not believe will weep and wail. This kind of puts an end to certain beliefs in the church today that Christ comes invisibly and spiritually and secretly. And then comes again in in another fashion, another time. Christ returns with the shout of the archangel and the trumpet of God. When Christ comes again, everyone will know. And finally, why shall Christ return, brothers and Christ, brothers and sisters? Christ shall come to rescue his saints. First Thessalonians four: The Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command and the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will always be with the Lord. Second, he will come to judge the nations. Second Thessalonians 1, God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us, when the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, marvel that among all those who believe, because of our testimony to you was believed third he comes to de- to defeat the final enemy for 1st Corinthians 15 the end comes he delivers the kingdom to the father destroying every rule and every authority and power reigning until he has put all his enemies under his feet for the last enemy to be destroyed is death he comes to usher in the new heavens and the new earth he is coming to consummate his kingdom And in the meantime, we are to live as faithful citizens awaiting that great day. And so, in the meantime, let us worship the great and glorious ascended and exalted Christ. Let us make it our aim every day to give him the glory that our enthroned King is due. Let us remember that though he is absent from us bodily, he is present with us by his Holy Spirit and dwelling us, and by his special presence with his church. That we should lay up all of our treasures where moth and rust do not destroy. That we should not live only for the sake of the comforts and treasures of this world, but placing our hope ultimately in the world that he is bringing, for the home that he will bring us to. That we should cast all our cares on the great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. That whenever we suffer the weaknesses and illness of the flesh, the temptations of sin, we should cast our eyes upward and remember that Christ has suffered our weaknesses. And that for every sin that we commit has been cast on his back to atone for. That his work is finished on the cross and he ever lives to apply that redemption to us. And we mourn in hope knowing that the dead in Christ now reign with Him in glory, and that we should share in their hope for the life to come. That we do mourn, yes, it is a sorrowful thing to lower those whom we love to the ground, trusting them to the day of their redemption. But we do so with hope, knowing that one day they shall rise and we shall meet them again. I don't. I try not to quote Lord of the Rings often, but sometimes it's inevitable. In the Lord of the Ring, when, when Gandalf and his friends are facing certain death, he looks at them and he says, The journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path and one that we all must take. The gray rain curtains of this world roll back and all turns to silver glass, and then you see it. White shores and beyond a far green country under a swift sunrise. Now, that is poetry and fantasy, but it's based on a reality, which is all the more glorious. We should also remember to beware the date setters. Anyone who says that they have calculated with certainty when Jesus Christ shall come, who published bestsellers like 88 Reasons That Jesus Shall Come Back in 1988. We <laughs> can all imagine why that's not quite the case. Beware those who trust for illegitimate certainty and who try to speak on God's behalf where he has not spoken. Matthew Henry said, If Christ makes us serviceable to his honor in our day and generation, this is enough for us. Let us not perplex ourselves about times and seasons to come. Lastly, in application, let us remain awake and aware as a good servant awaits the return of their master. May that be the fuel and the guide of our every waking moment. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 49, asked, what is the advantage to us of Christ's ascension? And the answer, that he is our advocate in the presence of the Father in heaven. That our flesh now is in heaven as a sure pledge that as our head, we will also be taken up to himself, his members. That he sends his spirit as a down payment by whose power we seek the things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God and not to the things of this earth. May we all seek to be so heavenly-minded that we are of the most earthly good. Let us pray.